developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. I'm at the nail salon. I'm at the grocery store. I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Groceries through Instacart delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular view that progressive centre-left politics still has much to offer the modern world. I'm Connor Pope, Deputy Editor of Progress, and with me in the studio today is Progress Chair Alison McGovern and new Deputy Director Stephanie Lloyd. This edition has an exclusive interview with former President of YouGov Peter Kellner on the essay in this month's magazine on productivity. podcast is now approaching its 10th week of existence wow 10 i know big 10 whoever thought we would come this far i know that for some people this is actually one of the first podcasts that they've ever listened to because we've heard that back from listeners but i know for many others they've just stuck it on their kind of regular rotor of podcasts that they listen to so i thought it'd be interesting to find out what our other hosts listen to regularly alison do you listen to other podcasts i do so i was on a podcast before i really started listening to them which was liverpool's finest the anfield rap which i still do from time to time and i think is a brilliant and b lots of fun so i do listen to that that's a football podcast isn't it it is so it's basically a lot of chat about liverpool fc Imagine a sort of podcast made up of the kind of football chat that people have all the time. And one of the really brilliant things about it is that people from around the world listen to it. Because obviously, if you're sat in like Boston or somewhere and you love the Reds and why would you not? You know, it can be quite hard to connect with. We'll glance over that. <laughs> it can be quite hard to connect with other true hearted intellectuals and the great minds of people that support Liverpool FC. So it kind of connects all those people up, which I think sort of demonstrated to me the power of it. The other podcast I listen to regularly is like slightly boring, but my bankers of the FT and The Economist, because you can basically listen to what you would otherwise have to sit down and read to kind of keep in touch and work things out. Is this for your work on the Treasury Select Committee? Or I've not heard of this podcast. This is Right. So the Financial Times and The Economist both basically just churn out loads of podcasts based on their journalism. And I think it is in some sense the future because there's obviously a massive productivity gain of listening. More to on that later. More exactly. Productivity, <laughs> the watchword of this month. You know, you can like listen to it on your journey to uh, work in the car or on the train or, or whatever. So 
So I would say they, those are my bankers. I've always got them on Oh, sorry. Phone. So I thought the podcast was called My Bankers. <laughs> oh, no, right. No, okay. No, this no. is just a phrase that, no, you're, that no, exactly. this is your podcast oh, bank we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Right. In, okay. my, in my bank of podcasts. In my defense, I don't think it seems ridiculous that the Financial Times might have a podcast feasibly called My Bankers. That doesn't seem like <laughs> beyond the realm. If they of don't, what are they doing? What are they doing? <laughs> Steph, do you listen to any podcasts? I do. I'm a big fan of podcasts, actually. And one of my favorites was always because I'm always at work whenever we women's hour is on so my favorite was always to kind of like go back do a bit of women's hour a um, lot of people do that i know a lot of people who download women's hour but what i'm so excited about is that lauren laverne is now hosting a late night women's hour podcast and it's just it's the first one this week like women's um, hour but with techno yeah which i think is fabulous so yeah getting very excited about that one coming i'm gonna listen to the first one of those on the way home and also someone who other than the kind of standard politics ones that, that we kind of all listen to i'm also absolutely loving the new jesse Ware table manners where she basically invites if you don't know jesse Ware, she's phenomenal but her and her phenomenal mom, at what sorry singing okay singing con the i'm really sure i don't know about about the Financial Times podcast. I don't know, pop singers. I can't wait till we get to your turn. <laughs> <laughs> but she basically sits down with her mum and they cook other pop stars and people like food and have like dinner with her with her mum and they just chat about things that are going on. And it's just, it's a lovely break from the rest of the world at the moment. Sarah Brown's Better Angels is also really good in that regard. If you need a break, yeah, you know, sort of, she's like interviewing people who've like basically done good things and like had a bit, bit of success in changing the world in a bit of a better way. And sometimes like, you know, you need to escape the kind of what everything that's going on at the moment and just like restore inner peace. You do. Connor. What's your podcast? I listen to a few political podcasts, all the kind of the usual ones that you might expect. But uh, generally, I, I really listen to football ones. They're totally football podcast. They've got one that is specifically about the football league rather than the Premier League, which I listen to because unfortunately, those are the only ones that cover Blackburn Rovers. Maybe you should start a Blackburn Rovers one. <laughs> there is actually a Blackburn Rovers podcast that I've not got around to listening to yet. I was on a stag do this weekend that was wrestling themed. Like <laughs> WWE wrestling. Right. And we were given. Now I'm like, I didn't even know there was more than one sort. Well, so there's, pro- there's proper wrestling that you might get in the Olympics. Uh, right, right, right. And then Got there's you. the stuff with, like, you know, Jazzy Hulk, outfits. Hulk Hogan, yeah. whatever. Yeah. We were given WWE training, which I thought might be kind of fairly easy because it's not proper wrestling, it's, you know, kind of fake. It turns out the only difference between proper wrestling and WWE is that the 22 stone man tells you that he's going to throw you over his arm (laughs) before he does it. It's really incredibly painful. But to try and, you know, kind of ingratiate myself with the crowd, I, you know, I started asking about the most recent wrestlers that I could think of who are apparently long retired now. So I was like, Stone Cold Steve Austin, what's he doing these days? (laughs) And genuinely, the reply was, he hosts a podcast now. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought was amazing. The most 2017 thing I could possibly think of. So I think I'm going to start listening to the Steve Austin show. Is that Uh, what it's called? He's got two. He's got a family-friendly one called the Steve Austin show and a more adult-orientated one. I don't don't know what that means. Called the Steve Austin show Unleashed. (laughs) Like late night women's hour. Exactly. Yeah, so I'm quite excited for that. Wow. If any listeners have any other podcast recommendations that they think we would like, please do send them in. Give us your views. Tweet them at us to at Progress Online, at Connor Pope, at Stephanie Lloyd 1, or at Alison underscore McGovern. (laughs) 
So if you love Christmas as much as I do, uh, and it's fastly approaching, uh, what could be a better gift to give your loved one than a Progress mug? If you leave a review on iTunes, you could be in with a chance of winning a Progress mug that you can pass on to a friend or loved one. Each week on Friday, Richard and Connor give away at least one of our fantastic mugs. So make sure you leave your review now on prog.rs forward slash iTunes. In Alison's Budget Extra episode of the Progressive Britain podcast, she explained the productivity challenge and the problems that productivity can cause. In this month's magazine, Peter Callender has written an essay on the issue of productivity, how you measure it, tax it, and why if you do not change our approach, we store up problems for progressive politics and the funding of our public services. Director Richard Angel met him to discuss further. My name is Richard Angel. This is the Progressive Britain podcast. We're joined by Peter Kellner, former president of YouGov and journalist for a number of established, not least Newsnight, famously being there. And the result of the 1992 election was called through and and the election didn't quite go. Thanks for reminding people how old I am. (laughs) But a guru on many issues and a friend of progress over the years. So thank you for joining us, Peter. Peter's done for the magazine that comes out today a essay on productivity, which was an issue that dominated the budget and the very numbers that the Chancellor was able to present to the country and therefore the decisions he was making going forward. So we're going to talk a little bit about this essay, what some of the assumptions therefore mean and what impacts they can have for social democracy, public services and the debate for progressives going forward. So I think it's just really important, Peter, to start with kind of what is productivity and why does it matter to the economy? Richard, there are two, in a sense, distinct meanings of productivity. And most of the time those meanings come together. But at the moment, as I'll argue, they don't. Meaning number one is it's a statistical thing. You count the output of the economy, you count the number of people working in it, the number of hours they work, and you divide one by the other, and you say the output of the economy per worker or per worker hour. And in normal times, that figure drifts up by about two, two and a half percent a year, sometimes a bit more, sometimes a bit less. But there's been a long run, pretty steady trend. And that stopped happening in the last 10 years or so. That's the statistical point. The more fundamental point is think about lived experience. Rising productivity is a sort of measure of human ingenuity, new and better goods and services. Productivity is now higher than it was, much higher than when our parents or grandparents were alive, because the economy has many new and better products and services. And the core of my argument is that the statistics, famously in the budget a couple of weeks ago, but it's true of most countries around the industrialised world, and it's been going on for 10 or 15 years, the statistics say productivity is flatlining or creeping up by maybe half a percent a year. Whereas think about our lived experience. Think about all the things that have happened in the last 10, 15 years, our our smartphones, the way we get news online rather than buying newspapers. We more or less stop buying CDs and DVDs. We don't buy encyclopedias or maps or road atlases anymore. We do all this online. We write emails instead of sending letters through the post. If one didn't have any productivity statistics and one simply said, in terms of our lived experience, look around, have things changed in the last 10 or 15 years? By golly, they have changed. So there's a mystery at the heart of all this. Why is productivity as a statistical phenomenon 
how's it more or less come to a grinding halt? And how is it the lived experience of human ingenuity that doesn't seem to have slowed down at all? Interesting that you note that this is 10 or 15 years, so it's pre-crash as well as post-crash, and it's not just confined to one country. This is not a British problem. It is a global... That's uh, right. I mean, there are clearly additional British problems to do with our infrastructure, to do with rates of investment and, and to do with labour hoarding by sort of zombie companies benefiting from very low interest rates. There are a number of, as it were, traditional productivity issues, but the main factor, I believe, is to do with technology, and that main factor applies to a great many countries, and as you say, it didn't start with Lehman Brothers and the recession 10 years ago. The graphs started to change direction around 2003, 2004, 2005. And if you look back, that is essentially when broadband took off and all the services that broadband facilitated and liberated started to take off. OK, so we'll come back to that in a second. But in particular, what happened with the OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility, and their change that changed the budget this time? If you look at what the OBR has been doing, every year since it was set up in 2010, it's a said at each budget... Productivity is stalled at the last year, but we think this is a short-term phenomenon and we think it'll soon resume its, its upwards trend of around 2% or so a year. They said that in 2010, then in 2011 it didn't take off. In 2011, they said, oh, it stalled, but we think it'll take off in 2012. It didn't take off, and so on and so on and so on. And they were saying this right up to last year. And this year, Robert Choate, to his great credit, because this can't have been welcome news to Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, said, I can't keep on saying this, the same thing year after year. Clearly, something's going on, which we hadn't taken account of. And so he said, rather than just blithely assume uh, once again that productivity will tick up again, he said... Maybe it won't. Maybe it won't return to the old old. He's, he's still saying it'll recover a bit, and he may or may not be right about that. But he's looked at the last seven years and said, no, no, there's something deeper happening, and we, we can't simply assume productivity will rise again. Let's look at what, what is happening more generally. And now, in your essay, you give us the example of Niviana, the land of milk and honey. Do you want to explain your kind of thesis on why and how this explains the productivity challenge? Going back 50 years when I was an undergraduate studying economics, one of the ways we were taught to try and think through a, a tricky problem was to imagine a country with just two products and the interaction between them. So I created this imaginary society, Nivania, a land of milk and honey, and nothing else. And I imagine that half the workers in Nivania were earning £20,000 a year milking cows and selling milk to the public, and the other half were earning £30,000 a year keeping bees and selling honey. Right? So half earning 20000 half earning 30000 Very simple. Average GDP, £25,000 per worker. Now, Let's imagine this. One of the brighter young sparks from Nivania goes abroad and discovers that actually everybody could keep their own bees and make their own honey. And Nivania, being a very flexible economy, overnight shifts to that. So all the people that used to keep bees and sell honey, they've stopped selling it because everybody in Nivania is producing their own honey. And so those workers who are... Um, making and selling honey, they overnight become milk producers instead. So over the country as a whole, there is now twice as much milk, because everybody's making and selling milk instead of half the country, and twice as much honey because 
everybody is keeping bees and making honey. And everyone's happy. So everybody's happy. So you'd say, right, the economy's twice as big. But that's not what the statistics will tell you. Because what you've got, instead of, remember, average GDP, £25,000 per worker, you've now got everybody earning £20,000 because they're making and selling milk. So the statistics will say Nirvana's economy has contracted from £25,000 a person to £20,000 a person. So there you've got, in a very simple way, that when you take things out of the measured economy, out of the things that are bought and sold, then the official statistics tell you one story, because they're measuring the financial transactions, and lived experience tells you another story. Now, OK, let, let's come back from Nivania to the real world. A small example. When you and I used to s send a letter, we would buy a stamp and a little bit of paper. So the GDP from a sending a single letter would rise by the price of a stamp and a fraction more, right? Now, if instead of sending a letter, we send an email, there is no financial transaction because we've already bought the monthly subscription to our service provider and so on. By switching from sending letters to sending emails, GDP has gone down, even though you could say that an email is a far better experience because the recipient gets it immediately. They don't have to wait one or two days to receive it. I'm pretty sure we're sending far more emails than we used to send letters. So the GDP has fallen to the extent that we're buying fewer stamps. But in terms of the measure of our communicating and writing with other people, it's gone up enormously. And you can repeat that in a whole series of ways. So Spotify or Apple Music versus CDs, yeah. you've got all kinds of things. That's right. And if, and if you now, as we do at home, you, 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 we, we have Sky and we can go and uh, watch hundreds of films um, yeah. without paying to DVDs. Netflix and so on. So in, in all sorts of ways, taking pictures, we no longer have to buy films. We don't have to send films off to be developed. Nobody buys a sat-nav anymore because you've a... got the app on your phone. That, that's right. So in all sorts of ways, we're replacing financial transactions, which are measured, with zero marginal cost transactions, which are not measured. But you go further than that, don't you? Because the other thing that you identify is that there was a traditional productivity challenge with technology itself, in which if a company was becoming more efficient, that meant that rather than making a 1,000 TVs with 100 mm. workers, they'd be making 1,200 TVs with 100 workers. But what's happening in technology is different. They're making better TVs, still only producing a 1,000 of them, and they cost about the same. But the TV we get is, I think you point out here, four times the kind of pixels that they were X many years ago. But the statistics don't cover in any way that the telly yeah. or the computer or whatever technology we're using has got substantially better for the same cost and the same unit hours to produce. That's absolutely right. When I was growing up in the 1950s and 60s, you know, products and services were gradually improving. But the main way productivity developed was because we had you know, better machines and so on. So in general, people were producing much the same goods as they were three, four, five years earlier. But because they had better machinery, each worker or each group of workers could make more cars, more television sets, more whatever. Whereas today, what's happening is that these products, cars, television sets, so many things, computers, they are changing radically. So instead of the same group of people producing more and the price is coming down what's happening is today 
mean, computers are a bit cheaper than they were three or four years ago, but the principal changes are far more powerful. Television sets, I think a television set, typical mid-range colour television set, has been around five or six hundred quid for as long as I can remember. But today's five or six hundred pound television set is a completely different animal mm. from what it was five or ten years ago. It has HD, it has different sound quality, it has bigger screens, you know, more pixels. And yet, in broadly speaking, the statistics are not capturing or not fully capturing that change. They're saying there is a television set. Yeah. And so And it has been sold. And, it and has, this many hours went into making it. This many hours went into making it. Now the statisticians, you know, are well aware of this, these these so-called quality changes, and they've developed a theory of called hedonic measures to try and capture this. But capturing hedonic changes is an incredibly complicated it is both philosophically difficult, it is conceptually almost impossible, and it is statistically incredibly expensive to do. And Philip and the, Hammond can't raise any money off the, the back of it. He back, can't make money off the back of it. And the OECD, which sort of, sort of oversees all this, says, you know, actually, only a few countries and a few things are using hedonic indicators. On the whole, these quality changes are being missed out of the statistics. And the third thing you identify in this, Peter, is that, and you use your example of having run YouGov for many years, is that there are companies who are using technology to make or provide the same thing, but quicker and cheaper, and therefore the statistics are picking up essentially that the economy is contracting, not that there is genuine efficiencies. Yeah, let me give you a very particular example from when I was helping to run YouGov a few years ago. When I started got inter- to get interested in, the, in these productivity figures, I, I checked with our office about what are the forms we fill in, because after all, the, the productivity data comes from the Office of National Statistics. And let me say, it's a terrific organisation. It's got some great people. It is arguably the world's best government statistical agency. The form that you got filled in, it talked about turnover, it talked about what we spend on inputs, it talked about the number of people we employed and so on. But there was nothing in the form which allowed us to say, this is the quantity of research we have done for this money. So YouGov, as you know, is an online company and it came in as a pioneering company when most uh, polling was done face-to-face or or by phone. And we would often win business that had previously been done by another company, telephone or face-to-face. And let's say a rival had been charging £100,000 a year for doing a particular piece of research. We would come in and we'd say, we'll do the same research, same quantity of research for £80,000 and win the business. Well, what appears on the ONS data is that Last year, £100,000 was being spent on research. This year, 80000 Now, what they should be saying is, wow, this is an increase in productivity, a cut in price, growth in GDP, growth in productivity. But that's not what happens. They simply see £100,000 last year, £80,000 this year, a decline in GDP. This is one tiny example across essentially the service sector, more or less the, the service sector, which is now a large part of the British economy, there is no real attempt made to measure the volume of output. And you can see why, because even if you're a West End hairdresser charging £300 for somebody's hair and somebody out in the suburbs is charging £30 for doing somebody's hair, well, do you say the West End is doing 10 times the amount of work? Is it 10 times the amount of quality? How on earth do you measure it? And actually what the statistics do is simply measure the financial transaction. So yes, that comes out as 10 times as, as much. But, but there is 
you know, there is simply no real attempt made to measure the volume of British services. And unless you can measure the volume of output, you've no real way of measuring productivity or measuring changes of productivity. So your thesis is essentially that these things aren't coming up because there are things we used to pay for that are now free. There are things that we pay a price for, but it's more superior than mm. what went before. And thirdly, that the new technology is shaking up some of these services. But some of these challenges or some of these theses has been challenged in the sense that surely that is freeing up money almost essentially in the economy for it to pretend other ways. People don't feel richer. They're not now they're not now saving more as a result of this. So this, surely this money is being spent elsewhere. Yes, but you want to look at both sides of the equation. Because after all, the people who benefited most from new technology are the people who used to buy the most stamps, the most CDs and DVDs, the most television sets, the most film uh, for cameras and so on, who are now not paying for these things, the most road atlases. So it's a, it, it's a better off. But yes, you're right. The money that people like me used to spend on these things, we can now spend on other things. But here's the problem. The people who used to supply these services we paid for, their jobs are disappearing or contracting. You don't need many people printing newspapers or road atlases or making or developing or films post. or delivery posts. And what are people, what are better people off spending more on? Well, they're spending more, it seems, on going out, going to restaurants, going on holidays, staying in hotels. So what we're seeing is, in a sense, precisely what the government is describing. There are lots of new jobs, especially if you work in a city, in a restaurant, in, in London, or, 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 or a, a changing um, beds in a hotel resort. There are lots of these low-paid, often zero-hours, leisure-related jobs. You know, they, they say that they're low-paid, and we're getting fewer of the old, stable, skilled jobs. So you know, we are seeing some of the consequences of all these changes in the fact that while the productivity figures have stalled, yes, employment is higher than ever, but the kind of employment that's coming along is often not the kind of jobs that people really want, and certainly not at the pay and level of security and, 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 a, and facilities to get full-time work that you had before. And you say that previous kind of technological revolutions were in transport, energy and manufacturing. They're now in data, and that is therefore having a very different impact in how technology is changing the country and the economy. Okay, and there are two distinct reasons for this. The first is that data is about the most mobile thing in the world, so you can set up as a technology company anywhere in the world and your data can whiz around the world. And so it means that the big tech companies, you know, whether it's sort of Amazon and Google and so on, they have the ability to play different countries' tax systems. And we know all about the difficulties we have in taxing these multinationals or data-related companies. So you know, first lesson, we need be far better and smarter at taxing the companies that are doing all this stuff. And that clearly needs international agreement. Europe gets together with America. You can probably then start doing something about it. Very difficult for a country the size of Britain to do it on its own. But the second thing is this, and the more direct thing is this. I believe we should be taxing data. I, in my smartphone, my iPhone, I can look into its settings and I can see exactly how much data I'm consuming each day, each week, each month. This information is there. And given that I am using data rather than paying for phone calls, paying for letters, paying for CDs, paying for DVDs, and paying for road artists, and all the rest of it, it would be, I think, relatively simple to tax data so that you know, the, the, the Vodafone and, and, and all the other um, mobile phone companies 
they would be part tax collectors because they had this information about their UK clients, UK customers. And my suggestion is if you if you structure it so the average consumer pays a pound a day in data tax, you get close to £20 billion a year. Well, that starts to address the problem I'd identify, which is that the part of the problem with productivity is not just that we're not measuring it, but we're not taxing it properly. Now, you could do this so you could make it progressive. So you could say that people who really need their phones, you know, who aren't very well off, who don't download a lot of videos or pornography or games or whatever, you could do it so that there's a threshold below which you pay no tax. So you could make it a progressive tax. But it seems to me that is uh, one powerful way in which we could mobilise the way technology operates to be a quite effective tax gathering system to replace the tax that we're not collecting because of all the things we're not paying for that we used to pay for. I think that's really interesting and really thoughtful. And so some of the other suggestions you come up with is a kind of Tobin tax, so this kind of financial transaction tax mm. that's long been talked about. I think uh, Amsterdam have tried to do something mm. similar with it. And John McDonald, of course, is a big advocate of it. Um, moving to measures like gross domestic utility rather than just looking at gross domestic product. And I think the other thing that you talked about is that bringing technology and the access to broadband and other things to the people who currently don't have access to it, who are generally poorer people, you have a quite nice line about if we can now have a free phone line for understanding universal credit, why can't there be one for those people to access information about understanding the new world? And also how public services who seemed immune to some of these changes, you know, a classroom looks almost exactly the same as it did in 1900 as it does today in the same way it's set out as a kind of didactic teaching, how we can propel those things forward. How do you think those things should be considered together? Um, the starting point is to get agreement that this is a key issue and that conventionally measured productivity is not going to climb back to the 2 percent 2.5% anytime in the foreseeable future. And therefore, the buoyancy of the measured and taxed economy is not going to return and yet the demands on public services, on education, on health, on pensions, on social care, on benefits for low-paid people and so on, these demands will continue to rise inexorably and the gap between the capacity of the measured economy to be taxed and pay for it and what we want the public sector to do will grow. Well, now, if you're a right-winger, you can say, right, the answer is the government should do a lot less. And that's an arguable view. But if you take the centre or centre-left, the progressive view, that we do want a decent health service, we do want every kid to have a good and free education, we do want our pensioners to be treated properly, we do want social care available for those who need it, then we're going to have a bigger and bigger fiscal gap that technology is exacerbating the problem. That's why we've got to look into the way technology works for the solution, both in the way we tax the use of technology and in the way that technology is applied in the public sector. And I think education is particularly interesting because you start to look at what some of the especially American private sector universities are doing with distance learning. And they're moving away, or not moving away from campuses, but in addition to having campuses, they're having no reason why a lecture by the world's best lecturer, instead of being delivered at one moment to 300 people in a hall, can't be delivered to 300 million people around the world. Now, you know, universities... Um, are moving in this direction. Schools, I think, rather less so. And I don't know exactly what will work, but what I'm saying is just as a car factory 
looks utterly different from what it did 50 years ago, just as steelworks look very different. Almost any industrial process looks different. Public services, the differences are less. There's a lot that you can do online. You can access a lot of government services online. But this is just nibbling at the edges. It's actually the way we do government services that I think needs to be transformed in order to fund what we need. We're not funding old ways of doing things where technology has the facility to do things better. And you're not the only person to have written about this. Since the budget, we've had somebody at the Bank of England wrote a quite fun piece that got some pickup in the Sunday papers and since that almost this is all the fault of millennials looking down at their phone Mm. instead of working, that somehow the technology we're using is distracting us from being more productive as a country. And you've seen the Treasury now say that this point about the tech companies, that taxing them and getting more for the Treasury from their profits is the other way to deal with this. Do you think either of those are kind of sufficient answers? Well, well, I'm not sure they're sufficient. I'm not entirely convinced that people looking at their phones makes them less productive. I remember when I was a student in, in the 60s, a lot of people said, you know, all the people like me who were out demonstrating about Vietnam or about Rhodesia, as Zimbabwe was then called, the white regime, you know, apartheid and so on, we should be knuckling down, going to lectures, writing essays, doing our exams. Well, I tell you what, all my closest friends who were active on all these demonstrations, they pretty well all got firsts and two ones. Quite a few of the right-wing students who are moaning at us and saying we should be attending your studies have probably got thirds. So I'm not entirely (laughs) sure that there's a a strict correlation (laughs) between, as it were, extramural activities and productivity. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for that, Peter. I think that is been a thoughtful discussion on the challenge that faces the Chancellor, but how you bring it home for what that means for progressive politics, the divide in the tax between that measured economy and the economy you can tax, and the demand on public services that we know there is and how we as centre-left people wish to fund them is really helpful, thoughtful. People should obviously download Peter's essay at prog.rs forward slash Kellner essay and you can read it for yourself. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for exploring those issues with us. Thank you for joining the Progressive Britain podcast. Pleasure. Now, that was a great interview, I thought, Alison, and it touched on quite a few of the problems that you raised a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it does. As you say, a a really interesting take. And the essay that Peter's written, I think, does the right thing, which is to look at not just, you know, the swathes of numbers that at a time like this, when we've just had a budget and everybody's thinking about the economic numbers, He's not just looking at the numbers, but rather what are the underlying relationships that these numbers are telling us about? You know, economics is a social science because it's trying to observe how the world is and it uses um, numeric relationships to explain that normally, but it's about the underlying changes. And what's going on at the moment is that new technology is having an impact As I would argue, it always does have an impact on our economy and the structure of it and how it works. And that is really feeding into what Liz Kendall was talking about last week, which is where wealth is now accumulating. And I think what Peter brings out really well is that global corporations that rely on innovative use of data are able to accumulate wealth in a way that the state has not caught up with. That's partly to do with what it is that we tax but it's also to do with the interconnected and global nature of newer companies. And it's an ironic thing, actually, that Britain, just at the moment where it's withdrawing from an important international partnership, 
is actually needing its international partnerships all the more. So the question we have to wrestle with is, as technological change means that globalization might exacerbate inequality, how do we as progressives reshape the tax system and make sure that we are not allowing people to go unchecked as they accumulate great wealth? And what other changes are needed? I mean, this kind of data thing is interesting and I'm fascinated by how we teach maths in schools. We're still teaching people how to do maths as if what they were going to do was go in and fill in a ledger at work, you know, like basically do like mental arithmetic calculations. Whereas to come back to where I began, what people actually need is to understand what maths is. And maths is about describing the world using logical relationships that, you know, one thing stands in relation to another. What an algorithm does is finds a mathematical way to explain something that's true about the world. And I think that's the kind of maths education people need, not a kind of, this is how you do long division, but rather, this is why long division works. This is why it's true. I'm glad you said that there were problems that need to be wrestled with, because obviously I now have the commensurate training <laughs> with which to carry that out. But uh, Steph, I just wondered if you have anything to come back with on that. Yeah, no, I think Alison is absolutely spot on in terms of that. And I think the thing that worries me within our politics at the moment across you know globally is that this becomes so entrenched and people are pulling away from that idea of global cooperation and you've got you know with people like Trump and Brexit and, and things that are happening you know we need to now these issues aren't just for one government to solve these are massive global issues that need progressive politics at the heart of it in terms of making sure that the innovation is continued to be able to help social problems yeah. and, and, and we and, can use those technologies but and Steph's right that that internationalism sometimes I think especially after we I remember in 2010 after we left government there was a criticism of that internationalism that was something like you know progressives don't really care about their own backyard because they're interested in like global politics but actually we're seeing the consequences of that kind of rhetoric now if you approach a problem by saying what really matters is just what happens in Westminster in our country or whatever then you find yourself incapable of dealing with it we can't approach tax as it relates to massive global corporations on our own and that doesn't mean that you know Britain is somehow too small or we're not powerful enough or whatever we've got to work in tandem with others whatever happens with Brexit that will still be true we will still be banging on the door of the European Union saying how can we collectively make sure that companies that are accumulating great deals of wealth pay what they owe to states so that states can provide public health, public education, so that everybody has a chance of making the most of the opportunities that globalisation affords. This has already been a bit of a bumper episode, so we should probably leave that discussion there. But do stick with us because we'll have a political pub quiz question in just a sec. So as ever on our Progressive Britain podcast, we have a political pub quiz question, Connor. So Alison specifically requested budget trivia for this week's political pub quiz question. Who doesn't love budget trivia? I was a bit stumped to what that even meant. But then I thought of this one. I think it might be pretty easy to get, but I'm hoping that it stumps at least a few people. Depends how much you love budget yes, trivia, I guess. It's pretty niche, Connor. It's pretty so, niche. so there is a rule in Parliament that the only time you can drink whilst in the Chamber of the House of Commons is when you're delivering a budget speech as Chancellor of the Exchequer. I, I think that's... Is that well known? Indeed. I, yes, this is... Sure? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. It's definitely in... When I give people a little tour of the 
commons. I think I think it finds it way, its way into my script. So my question this week is who was the last Chancellor of the Exchequer to deliver a budget speech with a glass of alcoholic drink? So who was it? Send in your replies. Tweet at Connor Pope or at Progress Online or at Alison underscore McGovern or at Steph. Stephanie Lloyd one. So tweet at any of us or email, which I can't, I can't remember. Office at progressonline.org.uk. Office at progressonline.org.uk. I'm so new technology. <laughs> I can't even remember our email address. Anyway, get in touch. Tell us what you think it is. And now, will there be a prize for this, Connor? I believe there'll be a progress mug wow. on offer Amazing. for winning the political pub quiz question. I think that's all we've got time for today, but we've been delighted to have that excellent interview with Peter Calderon. Thanks to Alison and Stephanie for joining me as always this week. And I will be back with Richard for a show on Friday. been listening to the progressive britain podcast with me alison mcgovern the music was when in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks to the brilliant caroline crampton who produced this podcast Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.